Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Today we're talking with actor-producer-director Justin Baldoni about his life, his faith, and how love drives everything he does. Baldoni is perhaps best known for his role as the playboy Raphael on the hit TV show Jane the Virgin. But Justin, the man, couldn't be further from that character in real life. He's even more handsome in person, and this guy is a completely smitten husband, a crazy in love father, and an incredibly grounded, spiritual person who studies and practices the Baha'i faith. Justin has put his strong faith into action, producing the groundbreaking humanist program, My Last Days, which celebrates life by hearing the stories and words of people that are living out their last moments on earth. His talents have recently expanded to launching Wayfarer Entertainment, a studio dedicated to creating content that advances social good and directing the feature film Five Feet Apart. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Justin Baldoni. Let's talk about how our paths crossed and the work that you're doing. Well, our paths crossed. So I, uh, and we'll talk about this, but I come from a, a very spiritual background and family. And I just deeply believe that it's, you know, it's become cliche to say there are no coincidences and everything happens for a reason. I, I believe I take that even farther. I go, I go into, there are, there are mystical forces, I think that bring people together for very specific reasons, both good and bad. And it's our job to figure out why and to learn from them. So I definitely am always looking for the end in the beginning when things happen. Uh, so what you and I, just that quick story, you had introduced a mutual friend of ours now uh, to a TV show that I'm on. Right. Uh, you can talk about that. And in, in an attempt to uh, – and what was interesting about it was you introduced your friend to that show as a way of being of service because she was going through a hard time. I ended up through mutual friends um, meeting this person. I was doing a screening of a documentary series I produced called My Last Days where I travel the country and I tell the stories of these amazing – beautiful people that are living with chronic and terminal illnesses, but they're living in a way that inspires all of us to live. And I was doing a screening for that show when I met uh, your friend who ran up to me because she was a fan of the show. We started talking. She said she was going through a rough time and I invited her to stay to come to the premiere of this. You know, this was a, it was airing on the CW. So we rented a theater and we did this big premiere and we watched the six documentaries of these amazing people. And you came to that event with her. I did. And that was it. And it yep. was a love story ever mm-hmm. since. Mm-hmm. And I cried my entire experience through that. Cause you're right. These are marvelous people that have continued to survive. And mm-hmm. some we've lost along the way. Can, can I go backwards and understand that show? Yeah. What brought that show forward in you? How did that happen? What was the sort of process? So and- I guess, I guess you got to go all the way back. I was raised in the Baha'i faith. I'm a practicing Baha'i. And for anyone that doesn't know what the Baha'i faith is, we, we, uh, we believe in the unity of all religions. 
in essence, we are all just following different chapters in one book. And God is this unknowable essence, not a he or a she, exalted far beyond our comprehension. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite, right? So how could we ever understand or comprehend the creator of a universe that has no beginning or no end, right? And the idea is that we're just all one and all the religions agree. And specific to the Baha'i faith, there is just a lot of talk on where we go when we die and life after death and the purpose of life and why we're here. And so I've always been both curious and terrified and just kind of obsessed with what happens when we die. Because it everywhere I look, it just seems like no one is asking that question. Yeah. Yet it's going to happen to everybody. Yeah. Can I ask a question as yeah, a yeah. kid? When did you first understand the concept of somebody passing away? I don't know if I remember when I first understood it, but I just remember being drawn to people who were closer. And I think that everybody has their own kind of purpose and gift, right? And what I remember is from an early age, people my age and my friends and older than me tended to back away from the ill or from the sick. And I always felt like a draw to down to, you know, when I would go see my grandparents, even though I was this kid that was really annoyed oftentimes by like, you know, the little things that they had me do, there was a part of me that always knew that they weren't going to be here for that long. And I wanted to make sure that they knew how I felt about them or that I experienced them. Um, I think that's a rare thing for a young kid and, you know, someone who's 10, 8, 12 years old to, to be processing yeah. They're going to die. And so I need to make sure they know how much I love them you or understood, to talk to them. You understood before and after. I, I did. And I'm so grateful for that because I got to have these beautiful, rich experiences with them and learning about them because I, I would ask them questions. And even down to I would go visit uh, – I remember visiting uncles and aunts and grandparents and and filming them like as a young – as a teenager, like filming them and asking them questions about things bringing it back, I I always had this kind of inquisitive, curious nature. And I was always very drawn and I wasn't afraid of being around people that were in that situation. And in my early 20s, I had a few very powerful experiences in a a very short amount of time. I was very close to my, my nana, my dad's mom. And I got to be with her and escort her and kind of, I was in, you know, in hospice with her throughout the whole time. And I fell in love with these hospice nurses who now as a as one of the things I go around the country speaking about is actually the similarities between birth and death and I actually think that hospice workers and midwives are the same people yeah which is a very interesting thing if you think about it which yeah. we can talk about later and I had these incredible experiences in my early 20s and uh, I started acting and I, I started directing and in my mid 20s I realized I was done with acting and I wanted to do more with my life and I decided that Nobody was asking questions. Nobody was looking to the end. Nobody was, nobody, everybody, we're all like, we spend our lives trying to like forget the fact that one day we're not going to be here instead of remembering the fact that we're not going to be here and then living that way. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, what if I could create a show for young people that kind of like shocked them back into reality, even for a minute. And it came through me one night. It wasn't of me. It just came through me and down to the name. My last day is a story about living told by the dying. And I called my friends at Soul Pancake, who had just started their company. Rain Wilson is one of my close friends. And we decided to do it together. So I spent a year 
making a documentary series for $4,000 an episode. <laughs> Gave up my life. My house went into foreclosure. It was one of the most fulfilling, happy, rich years of my entire life because I, I was surrounded with these people that were constant reminders and how beautiful life can be despite the circumstances. And that was the year that my wife and I fell in love and we got engaged and um, I met these amazing people. And if I look back at my life, that year, that year of service, that year of just going deep and experiencing like the richness and the fullness and the sorrow and the beauty of life, um, everything in my life that's beautiful now has stemmed from the seeds that were planted that mm -hmm, year. Mm -hmm. and, and you understand that equation very well of service equals abundance that they're they yeah they're one and the same i think yeah. and um and what was interesting was the year before that i had gone through a very rough time in my life and i was lost and i remember going to the shrine of baha'u'llah who is the prophet founder of the baha'i faith in israel and just i remember going there just on my knees saying okay god whatever i'm supposed to do whatever thought i had for myself whatever i whatever i wanted Please take that away and just use me the way you need to use me, mm -hmm. please. And it was it was one of my most fervent prayers, I think, ever was just asking God in that moment on my knees and saying, just let me be a tool for the greater good for your cause. And was that a moment of surrender or was it a moment of frustration? Like what was the emotion that, that was, was inside a, that of was it? A, well, that moment was a moment of surrender. That moment was a moment of what I thought I wanted for my life isn't working. Mm. And I really want to be useful. I really want to like, I want my life. So if it means not acting anymore, if it means not doing these things that bring temporary self glorification and gratification, if it just means being of service and whatever, if you want me to just tell the stories of the homeless, whatever it is, let me succumb to that and be of service. And that was the year that my whole life changed. This temple um, is in Israel? Yeah. So the Baha'i faith, the holy land of the Baha'i faith is in Israel. It's in Haifa, Israel, which is interesting, right? You know, you have... All of the kind of holy lands, it's mm -hmm. all in the same place. Yeah, it's um, a beautiful white palace. It's the garden, the yeah. 19, it's the 19 terraces. But yeah. where I was, was in Akka, Israel, which is where Baha'u'llah's remains are. We just jumped all How over the place. How old were you when this started? Uh, when I went to Israel for that, uh, I was 26. It sounds so that you'd been moving towards that anyway your whole life, and this was just a um, clarification of who you wanted to be. Yeah, but you know, I think that when you when you're raised in a spiritual family and you're raised in a faith, doesn't matter what it is, I think that every everybody has to take their own journey to find it. And I have so much respect for people that find faith or find a faith and get on fire in their 20s or in their 30s or 50s because it means they have to detach from what they were raised with and like attach on to a completely new idea. So for me, like I was raised with these quotes and principles that like women and men are inherently equal and they are two wings of a bird and not until the two wings can fly and are equivalent in strength that the bird can, you know, soar. And like I was raised with these ideas, but it wasn't until like growing up and hitting my 20s and falling into depressions and like being lost in relationships and putting the emphasis like on the wrong syllable that I that I, I had I had to find my way back to God. In were many you ways. both of your parents or your parents married? Yeah, married. Were both of your 30, parents spiritual years. people as well? Yeah. Well, my mom is the spiritual kind of force of the house, and my dad is very spiritual, but they they practice it in different ways. My mom became, my mom was Jewish and became a Baha'i 
in the seventies and here in LA. And then when my dad became a Baha'i, when he met my mom and, uh, and my dad's spirituality is practiced, I think, totally in action, which at its core is what spirituality is. And my mom was kind of the spiritual teacher. So my dad didn't have like the wealth of knowledge of like the things that the book said, but lived it naturally, right? And my mom had all the information. So it was cool because I got to, and my mom lives it too, but I got to learn about what I believed in my faith growing up from my mom and then I got to watch it in practice in many ways from my dad. Are you an only child? I have a little sister. Is she also, um, I don't know if the right word is studying. She's or, a practicing She's Baha'i. a practicing yeah, yeah, Baha'i yeah. as well. Yeah, she's a follower. Of and now, Baha'i. and your wife? My wife is now, yeah. It's when, <laughs> it was really funny. When my wife and I met through through something that I was doing at the time called the spiritual talk, which was after I actually got back from that trip to Israel, I came back and I the Baha'is have these little study circles called the Ruhi groups where you kind of, it's like a very simple way of understanding and learning about the teachings of the faith. I started this little group and then I became very impatient with like the, just kind of how slow it was going. And I wanted more of my friends to come and be a part of it. So I kept inviting people that I would meet and soon way too many people were coming and you (laughs) couldn't follow the book. So we ended up developing this thing called the spiritual talk here in LA which was this place that we created so that you could have deep and meaningful conversations without any fear of judgment. So it didn't matter if you were Baha'i or Christian or Jewish or Muslim or atheist or, you know, whatever you called yourself, it was an open place where everybody could come and ask questions, ask life's big questions. Like, what is love? What is God? What is pain? Why is there predestination? Like, do you believe in reincarnation? What is death? Like, do we ever die? Like all of these things. And it was this open, safe space for everybody, and it became this massive thing where 150 people every Sunday would show up in my house. And I didn't have a very big house. It was an apartment. It was a duplex, and there was a our landlord was underneath us, and she was not very pleased yeah. many times. But <laughs> that's my, my wife and I met through there, and it was really funny that my wife uh, told me on our first date that she'd never be a part of a religion, and she didn't believe in marriage. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, and, obviously uh, well, neither and, one of those things were. And it was funny because I remember, like, and on our first date, I this is the weirdest thing ever. But I took her. Your podcast people are going to think I'm so weird. I took my wife to a celebration that happens every year for the first American Baha'i. His name was Thornton Chase, and I took her to a cemetery. <laughs> where, on your first date. On our first date, where. There was like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Baha'is honoring this first American believer. Here in Los Angeles? Who's, and he's, he's buried in Inglewood. And um, Abdul Baha, who was the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, came and visited Thornton Chase and asked the Baha'is to come once a year and say prayers and celebrate and honor him. And this was the 100-year anniversary. So when I asked my wife out on her first date, she gave me this day, which was like a Sunday. And I said, all right, but I have plans to go to this thing on Sunday. You want to come with me? And so we went hiking and then we went to the, to this cemetery pulling into the cemetery is when she told me like, yeah, I don't, I'll never be a part of a religion and I don't think I'm going to get married ever. And I was like, <laughs> okay, this will be fun. <laughs> well, and your, your spiritual talk is very meta Baha'i in a way, because you were inviting all different kinds of traditions and religions to just have communion around subjects around and subjects and ideas. Yeah. But what was so funny was that the purpose of it, my purpose of it at the end of each spiritual talk was for everyone to realize that we were the same, which is very meta Baha'i because that is the whole point is like, we are literally the same. We're one thing. Even as a Baha'i, I can look at all the religions as, 
as one book because that's what we're told, right? We're literally told that it is all, there is one God. You can't put a name on him or a her or a him on. And we're all just trying and doing our, we're all children that are just trying to like figure out the best way that we can live and deal with these big, you know, concepts like the fact that we're all going to die one day. It's so interesting that we're talking about this. I think frequently about the famous Rodney King line, you know, can't we all just get along? <laughs> and I, which, you know, this is 25 years later from the time that he said that. And I think about it all the time. And I think that religion in its core has so much friction in it, but that overall people are spiritual. And if we honor the spirituality and use that as the wisdom and stop getting ground up and, you know, you're this and you're that and we don't get along because of these reasons and as a Jewish person, um, unfortunately, my family and I have been the recipients of directed anti-Semitism, which is terrifying mm. when it happens to you. Mm-hmm. Terrifying. And to feel like people don't like you because of some re- some religious thing is just so alien to me, the concept. I don't under- understand at all why people are um, so um, evil about different points of view. And at the core of it, though, it's all spirituality. If we could sort of focus on that and less on the differences and more on the similarities. It's like not liking – it's like not liking sixth graders when you're a fifth grader or an eighth grader. Yeah. It's like the, it's – we're all in a school and none of us know the real answer. We have our ideas and our beliefs. The absolute truths that we know is that we were born and one day we're not going to be here anymore. We're yeah. going to die. And everything in between, Right is open to interpretation, right? So we have this guidance, but like, it's like, it doesn't make any sense because even science, like one of the Baha'i beliefs is that science and religion must be in harmony. The two must come together and be in harmony. One without the other is the equivalent of a blind practice. So blind science is, is science without the belief of God behind it. And blind religion and faith is that same thing without science. If you look and just you break it down to simply like we are clearly not animating our own bodies, right? We are clearly not the animating force like beyond our bodies. Something happened that caused our brains to fire and our atoms and molecules to be created and to be moving. Like there's something behind it, right? And we know that through science that energy can't be created or destroyed. And if it was created, where did it come from? Who created it? So like we're looking at this like we are not our bodies. Clearly when we die – and we've all seen somebody or been there uh, where someone's passed. There is a tangible, physical thing that happens where you suddenly don't see the person, like in an instant. Therefore, was that person ever really there? Or was there something inside that person that, was, that really made up that person? So when you think of if you break it all down, like we're not even – we, we're not even the things that we're being prejudiced against, yeah. right? Like we're literally not like the shell of us, our body. It doesn't matter. I don't know. I look at – sometimes I look at the world and I imagine like, God, what must it be like for the creator of the universe? And how hard must that be? Like to look and you see all of these children. And that's how I look at it. I think of God like a father, right? You see all of your children that you gave all of your love to and you gave them these incredible faculties. and. And in the Baha'i faith, we're told that they're all my, they're all a mine rich in gems of an estimable value. Like you have, they have like the secrets of the universe inside each of these human beings and you, you gave them everything 
and they're just playing in a sandbox and they're fighting over sand. All of these people. It's just like, that's your sand. That's also your sand. And that's also your sand. And that's it. And like all of these big complex issues and things, they don't really matter. None of them do. We're just children fighting in a sandbox, trying to like say we know more. You know, it's like, and you're, and you're both parents, like when your kids tell you that they know more than you, or like they know how to do that thing <laughs> Mom, and you kind of laugh. don't understand. Yeah. You just don't understand. And you're like, I do, sweetie. I do, sweetie. And that's how I kind of feel like it's like, God, that must be so, again, this is me putting my own imagination no, yeah, on God. And your own human perspective. My, this is me putting a human yeah. perspective on something that yeah. is beyond human, but it's like, oh, and I can just yes. feel, I feel like pain and sadness for like, what must that be like for yeah. whoever created us? Yeah. Well, and to see us killing each other and fighting over things and hating what? each other over nothing, over yeah. nothing, uh, over his land, love, territory, well, and possessions. It's, and it's 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 really amazing to see, too, when you step into your godliness, for lack of a better word, when you step into creating the continuation of that animating force mm. by living into your gifts. Yeah. You know, and by yeah. saying yes Mm-hmm. To that that part of you that is of that omniscient, all powerful, unknowable. It's fascinating. You know, you've been doing that a lot in in a wow. bunch of different directions in your career. It's very um, fascinating to me to see because you gravitate towards deep emotional subjects, and yet there's there's levity, there's mirth. I gravitate towards things that I think like are, are the building blocks of humanity and the human existence and things that we tend to run away from. Right? So what is that like to be a guy that looks like you, that does what you do, who over and over and over again is magnetically drawn to the heavy stuff? The looks part of it is, is a different thing. I mean, I still struggle with, I mean, I was an ugly duckling, so I was never... I never got the girl. I was never, you know, in mm-hmm. high school. Like, it wasn't me. So the looks thing is tricky in that I still have my own struggle and insecurities with how I feel I look compared to how others view me. Right. So in some ways, I'm kind of, um, you know, when you have like a, like you have a really big dog that thinks he's a puppy. Yeah. And kind of like <laughs> runs into everything. Well, I do that in life anyways, just physically, because my wife jokes about this a lot that I don't know how big I am. Right. Like physically, because I still feel like a, a skinny, yeah. scrawny yeah. little kid. Right. And I just run into everything. But I think it's this I think it's a similar thing with, I guess, attractiveness and that, you know, people that are the most attractive people in the world have the identical insecurities of people who are the least attractive, sure. which is a funny thing. You have the top two percent, the top two percent that feel the same way about themselves inside. <laughs> right. The difference is, is that the top two percent have privilege and the top the bottom two percent don't. Right. The top two percent can use those looks to get anything they want. And the bottom 2% just are stuck feeling the way that they're feeling, right? right? right. So in just terms of the looks thing, that's just been an ongoing battle and struggle with me. Don't you, look, don't you look at that as almost a secret weapon, though, in, in terms of your compassion, in terms of your humanity and what you – like because you're very maybe, vulnerable about it. I, I, I think that in some ways that it was, a, it was a huge blessing for me to not feel attractive my whole life. And I'm grateful for that. I think that I – that waking up in the morning and not feeling like I look good or feeling like that eight-year-old boy that was bullied and picked on, I don't even know if it's a secret weapon. I'm just really grateful for it because it's a reminder, right? And then when people compliment me, it's like, you know, okay. <laughs> it doesn't do anything because yeah. like I, I still yeah. struggle with my – so it's it's a blessing. And if anything, 
maybe God designed me in that way so that I could not be affected by it and use it for good. Maybe, you know, in terms of the other part of it. I would say, if I may, all the time I've known you, you never trade on that. You're the, the things that I read of, of you when I'm in your presence is your genuine sincerity, your desire to pay it forward, your ambition to correct the things that you see that are wrong and to help those that can't help themselves. Well, that is and, a tremendous compliment. You know, as evidenced that. by the fact that, you know, and we haven't gotten into the sort of meandering here, but um, the thing, the work that you do with people who are homeless and the amount of time that you spend trying to be, I don't want to say the word helpful, but to be present and to have at least a day in the lives of these people to make their day better is so overwhelming and it's so magnanimous and magnetic and you draw people in and we do what we can to make it better for a day. And hopefully have the ripple of that. And that comes from you. I mean, the energy energy that you put towards that is. And, and I think that part of what makes it even more powerful is the fact that you had the journey that you had. Yeah. Mm. I, that's what I'm that's really what I'm trying to say, because I, I you completely uh, knock it out of the park in terms of bringing forward. The good that you want to do, you go and you do it. And it's amazing yeah, because so many so people, many people talk, talk, talk and talk. so few people do. And you do. And I mean, I, you were just engaging in a conversation earlier with someone um, that is going to permit you to scale it even more. So yeah. like you're not even just doing it. You're doing it and you're saying, OK, how can I do it more? There's this twin powers of your humanity, but also your desire to wade into that deep emotional stuff. Yeah. And that's that's Oops. really like it's right. it's very interesting. Where are you from? Here, Santa Monica. You were born li- live in Los Angeles. Born in Santa Monica. When we were 10, we moved to Oregon. And came back? Or you And fa- then I came back when I was 18. Is your family here? Family came back too. Everybody's back. Everybody's back. I want to bring it back. So the idea of like doing it. Yeah. It comes from for me, my faith. The definition of faith from the Baha'i perspective, literally, Baha'u'llah says is a fewness of words and an abundance of deeds. The definition of faith, right? And then the second definition is conscious knowledge and then the practice of good deeds. But you don't have faith if you do one of them. You can't just know something and you can't just do something. You have to know why you're doing it. So faith, you know, thinking about it like a marriage, right? Like, you know, or like like you have a sperm and an egg that together create a human. It's the same thing. It's you have to you consciously know something, but then the practice of it is the faith, the doing of it. Mm-hmm. So I I can't take any credit for that because it's just in the DNA of how I was raised in my faith um, and how I think that really all faiths teach us to be, mm-hmm. which is don't just f- follow me in theory, follow me in practice, mm-hmm. right? Like every faith does the same thing. I don't, Get know, out I, there I don't and, know if I would agree that every faith does that, but I would say the large majority of them I think the do. foundation, where I would disagree, is I think the foundation of every faith teaches the exact same thing. And it gets lost. It gets lost because we as mankind, right, um, first of all, we don't practice the name mankind, but we get lost because our egos get in the way and we make it about ourselves. But the essence of faith has always been that, that we must do and we must practice what we learn. 
It's just it gets it just gets lost, and we think that showing up on church well, on Sunday is practicing has. faith. I mean, when you think not. about what goes on now, I mean, I, although as far as many years back as you can think of, and as a Jewish person, when you think about, you know, it wasn't that long ago. It was in my parents' lifetime that World War II happened. Yeah. We you lost know, a lot of family in the Holocaust. I was sitting in um, the movie theater the other day. I went to see a movie with my husband, and they had a trailer for Steven Spielberg's film Schindler's, Schindler's List, List. Yeah. being re-released in December this year, you know, on the big screen. Yeah. It, the film was made 25 years ago. My four children were so young that I didn't take them at the time because, you know, it just wasn't an appropriate film to see that they'll see now. And a whole generation of people will see it now. Because and you can never it. forget what happened. And they're re-releasing it because people are forgetting. They are forgetting. People are forgetting that it happened. It forget- and if, and you, it, ask, and it if was you go around that- and you ask high schoolers today about the Holocaust, a lot of them don't even know what it was. I saw a videotape the other day, which I'll forward to you, um, which was uh, in Germany, there's a cemetery that's an above-ground cemetery where mm. thousands and thousands of Jewish people are buried mm. that had no names. And there were people skateboarding on the cemetery, on the, on the um, you know, where the people are laid. Yeah. And somebody made a videotape to show, it was very sad, but to show where they were and how, how could you be so disrespectful mm. to be skateboarding on the graves of Jewish people that were killed. Yeah. And it was so profound. It just absolutely knocked the wind out of me when I saw it. And, it's just, and, and here's the thing is that, and then I go back to, it's not their fault. It's just a disconnection and a lack of education. You know, these skate, these kids that are skateboarding, they don't know what they're skateboarding on. Oh, no, and, they knew that this, it was a cemetery. But it goes back. Yeah, but it goes back to, I mean, look, we live in Hollywood, right? They have movie nights at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery all the time. People go and they watch horror movies. <laughs> like people, you know, and it, and, it, and it just comes down to this idea, which is kind of one of the reasons why I make my last days, which is that we push this idea of death so far away that we become irreverent, right? Because we don't, like we forget that those were human beings with full life experiences that were sitting there. Yeah. Now I can take it even farther. And this is my own belief in that while we should be reverent and have respect, those people aren't there. They're not there anymore because this goes back to the first thing we talked about, which is the souls are what made their bodies and minds animate. So they're often what I believe is a whole nother existence, which is they're not worried about the, transitory things that we're worried about here. However, for those of us that have lived through it and that have seen the pain and that, and know the unjustness of what happened, there should be a reverence and a respect, but there's just a lack of education because nobody's talking about that stuff. Let's go back to you. So came from LA. Born in Santa Monica. Born in Santa Monica. Uh, After the 94 earthquake. Oh, did your parents uh, pick up and say, we're out of here? My mom was like, we're done. (laughs) (laughs) My mom was a. My I felt mom, much the same way. My mom, for a long time, believed California was going to fall into the ocean. She may be right. <laughs> she still may be right. Um, we just don't know when, and hopefully thought, it's after. I'm not yeah. here anymore, so I don't have to watch my beach house go into water. Yeah. <laughs> not that I want to make this about me, but it's true. I'd be sad for your beach house. <laughs> yeah, it would be sad. Uh, and then we, you know, she really, I think, thought that living in Oregon, she'd have beachfront property. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And, uh, and we lived there for eight years. Well, I lived there for eight years. I had a pretty rough go. You know, it was kind of like moving from, and again, Baha'is are not political, but the only way I can describe it is like moving from like a liberal bubble to a conservative, you know, camp. It was like 120 kids in like a schoolhouse built in 1850 and everybody was cousins. <laughs> like that's oh, where wow. I moved to. No, literally, like they were all cousins. Wow. There was so like, you were the other, literally. I was the other. 
I mean, where we moved to, there was one black kid in the school and everybody called him the N-word like oh, wow. by half his name. And I was like, what? where am I? So it was a wow. big culture shock and we eventually moved kind of into much more of a suburban area for the last couple of years of high school. But but yeah, so it was a very interesting thing to grow up and see both sides and both worlds, um, which is helpful for me now as I navigate life in kind of a political civil war and being apolitical and just not engaging on either side, being able to actually have compassion for where both sides come from is interesting. I'm going to start describing myself as apolitical because I feel exactly the same way. Uh, well, I just I, think that politics are, I don't know. I, nasty, politics, mean, well, disrespectful. Again, and I don't have, I have opinions and thoughts and feelings, of course, but per the Baha'i belief, which is the, the foundational purpose is unity, then in some ways you can't join a political party and we're told not to and we're told not to talk about it because it is intrinsically inherently divisive. Do you guys not vote? Of course we vote. Yeah. But we don't talk about what we vote for and we don't vote on a political party system because then you're only opening yourself up to one half of it, which is what we're experiencing now. Like right, We right. vote on the people. We vote on the issue. Mm-hmm. I have voted – I'm Democratic. I voted Republican. I voted Independent. It's like you vote for – the issue and the thing. You think and then you act. You think and then you act. So why did your family come back to Los Angeles? Because I asked them to. Because <laughs> you wanted to come back? You were 18 I was. Uh, no, back? so I, I came back when I was 18. I uh, my, my short story is I was uh, – I really th- – I was going to – I wanted to be an athlete. I thought that was my path. Um, I wasn't very good in school. I was one of the kids that was much more of a kinesthetic learner and um, I, the, the testing and the grading scales were not for me. I just wasn't able to f- – to thrive in that uh, in that type of educational system, and so I was either I was a problem kid, or I wasn't smart enough, or I you know I got a nine eighty on my SATs. <laughs> I just wasn't I wasn't a test taker. That wasn't the way I my brain worked. Yeah, so many people are like that, and they just don't. And people don't know how to. It's outside of the box that everybody lives in. So, but it's unfortunate because so much of the things that we like love and use and rely on and art that we respect comes from people like me that didn't fit in those boxes. You really need much smarter than me. Let me just say that you really Um, need parents to kind of guide and supplement and recognize the individual kid and what, who, who that kid is is. and who that person is and what they can and how they can be of benefit to the world and not so much like, Oh, you're an ABCD or an F or you're a 900 to an 1100. So you can only go to these schools I assume that you were very verbal though because you are very verbal. You're very articulate and quick. I was very verbal but I think that – I think that that was – I just don't think it was ever properly channeled. I only had one teacher I think ever tell me that she really believed in me and that she was excited for my future and I'm still friends with her because of it. Mm -hmm. That one teacher made a massive impact in my life because she saw me and – so many kids don't get seen. And so you just think about how many kids, how many presidents, how many like, you know, uh, Teslas and, yeah. you know, all these types of you know, individuals, of how many, type, how many, <laughs> how many kids no, don't get seen and therefore don't ever become. No. And when you're different, you know, people just don't know how to deal with that. It's, you know, different. Yeah. You're different. You don't have to. Yeah, exactly. So I, uh, so I, I tore my hamstring, which ended any sports, uh, 
career goals, ambitions that I had. And I found myself getting rejected from schools that I wanted to go to because my grades weren't that good. Did my you work when you good. were a kid? Did you have jobs? Yeah. So I started when I was 16. I started working overnights at a radio station as a DJ. It was like the coolest radio station in town. And I did a project. Again, this goes back to like the way that I kind of did schooling for myself was, you know, what do you want to be? And I was like, I don't know, but I want to be in entertainment, I think, because I want to say something and affect people. That's all I knew. But there was, I was in this small bubble that there was nothing. There was like the local news station and then there was the local radio station. And I loved music. Was that experience of affecting people by doing something, did that come from sports or did it come earlier? Like, I don't know where it came from. You don't know. I can't tell you. I can tell you that the only way I can describe it is that it's like in my DNA, when I am in a place in my life where I'm able to affect change or inspiration or hope, it doesn't go to my ego. It goes to like this part of me that feels like home and where I see a lot of it going wrong. Like when people feel like they need it to be useful, it becomes about themselves, which you see in a lot of churches, you see in a lot of ministries, you see in a lot of social media things where it's like, I'm really helping you, but really I'm helping myself. For me, it just feels like, okay, I'm, I'm back where I, where I'm, I'm supposed to be. Yeah. It's not like a, I need it. It's just, okay, this is why I'm here. Yeah. So I'm going to do it while I, while I'm here. Uh, so I started working at a, at a radio station when I was 16 because I did a school project and I interviewed the DJ for like a career path and I loved music and he offered me a job working overnights. So <laughs> at 16 that. Friday and Saturday nights, I would work midnight to six in the morning and have my own show. Oh, at and 16. At, I started at 16. Um, it was right when I got my license. So what I would kind of drive. music were you it playing? Was, it was top 40. Okay. So it was like the cool. Okay. It was, you know, it was a, it was a total, we reached like a quarter million people. Like it was like a, you know, 50 miles. Yeah. And there was, I said, there was drive time, kids coming home from parties, whatnot, and they'd land on your station. It was, it, I don't even know who. I mean, it was like people that worked other overnight shifts and. Sometimes, yeah, but it was like, it was called Beat 93 and it was the cool station. And I remember it was like, what? And I just kind of fell into it. And you got paid for it. And I got paid $7.25 an hour. Wow. Nice. And, uh, and I worked part with that money. And I worked at Beat 93 as the radio DJ. My name was Justin Case. Justin Case. Justin Case. That's, um, there's, there's a series of kids books that you'll learn about in the near future just called in Just case. In Case. And, uh, and That's then, so funny. And then I started working like during the day. Did you make that name up? I'm still stuck. Still stuck on the well, DJ. Well, it was either going to be Just In Time or Just In Case. <laughs> it was either Just In Time or Just In Case. It was one of the two. That's so funny. And then like – and I remember like I – you know, because I even at one point – like I got bigger shows, you know, so I would do, I would fill in for the big DJs in the middle of the week when I was in school and things. And on the radio, they have those like uh, taglines. So mine was like, just in case, because his mother wasn't sure, you know, <laughs> or uh, one of them was. Uh, That's fantastic. The perfect face for radio. <laughs> just in case. Like That's that what was Howard like Stern my, uh, says all the time. He says, I have a perfect face for radio. A little self-deprecating. And at the time I did, it was, that's what it goes back to what we were talking about. So I worked and then I, uh, in high, and when I was a senior, I was working like every day. I was doing like the midday show. I was, I was recording and then I was on the radio during the day. So like when the kids would go to lunch, like I could be, I would be on the radio a lot of the times and I would go do the, they call them remotes where it's like, Hey, broadcasting live from blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I was 16, 17 years old. And I thought I, I was like, maybe that's going to be my path and my career. So I moved to Long Beach. I went to Long Beach state. They couldn't rehab my hamstring. I fell into this relationship. I fell in love. The girl broke my heart, found out she was living a double life and, you know, cheating on me and, uh, reset me and 
found myself in LA sleeping on a couch in my dad's office on the Wilshire corridor. He had like a tiny little studio apartment office that nobody used because um, he was working on something that ended up not happening after that. And I slept on a couch and found my way into acting. A guy asked me if I was a actor and I said, no, but I would be. And, uh, no, four okay. months later, I found myself doing a Hallmark movie with a really horrible Italian accent. And that was the beginning of my career. <laughs> did you study acting after that guy said, hey, maybe you should? Or did you just yeah, kind of so, go in? So I studied – I took a class in college and I fell in love with it. Um, I took one class in college and then uh, and then when I moved here, I auditioned for the UCLA theater program and I got denied. And, uh, and then when this – when I met this guy, I – got into an audition class. That was my first acting class. It was an audition class. It's like class. the story of, of what's her name, the uh, 50s actress that was sitting at the counter at Schwab's and um, Guru Garson. Oh, okay. You know, that's how she got found. Yeah, you want to be an actress? Oh, okay. <laughs> and then, you know. Yeah, this was an interesting situation uh, for sure. But I'm also very grateful because it was... How it lucky. Was, I mean, you got to be a working actor. You know, and I've, three months in, I started working. And then a year later, I got my first series and I got... I what had was success. your first series? It was called Everwood. It was with Treat Williams and it was on the WB. Back then, yeah, and uh, Greg what year, Berlanti. What year are we in now? That when that happened? What year that was, was I was twenty one, so that was f- thirteen years ago. Yeah, so, so almost fourteen years ago. Have you worked five. nonstop? So my journey was such that I I found success, and then I think for me, I I quickly forgot and made it about myself. And I think like what he giveth, he taketh away. <laughs> I, remember being like spir- I remember being like spiritually on fire, like, holy shit, I got a show. I can do so much good with it. And then it just all became about myself. Like it just was about me. Um, it's an interesting balance that you have to hold there. It's tricky. What is Success that? Success and, how, how and money that? and fame. It just amplifies who like who who's already there or what insecurities are already there. And at the time I was I think too young. I had no training. I had nothing to, you know, I learned how to act on TV. You know, I mm-hmm. don't even know how it happened, but I'm grateful that it happened because I got to experience success and see also how fleeting it was. And it, you didn't come from a showbiz family, so you didn't have anybody. Well, I, well, I did and I didn't. My dad actually started the product placement industry oh, in no the early kidding. 80s. So <laughs> I did, but he was behind. He was not like he was the guy. He wasn't even involved really heavily in production he was the guy that was helping production save money and making money off of the companies that were that he was putting in the movie but he was like he would go to set every once in a while but so we were in the showbiz but we weren't in in it at the same time like he was like a real it was like a job he was an entrepreneur what was his company called back then it was called baldoni and associates okay he was like one of the first three guys he did it with spielberg and after et he did it with gremlins yeah after the reese's pieces blew up but it was cool because i got to grow up Watching my dad look at films and figure out like how advertising can be built into the films. And he was he was so ahead of his time. He even I remember he told me that one day there wouldn't be TV. It would all be interactive TV and the commercials would be baked into the show itself, which is really interesting because my friend Joe, uh, who runs Fox, is now literally saying they're going to start baking in all of the commercials and reduce the commercial time down to like three or four minutes. Mm-hmm. And so he was far ahead of his time and, and has taught me so much, which I'm now using as I'm going in and yeah. Yeah. doing things. It's changed so much, your business. I mean, nobody watches commercials anymore. And, um, but you need them still. So you we, need them, we, and, but you know, building them in is the solution. Branded content, that building them in, all that stuff. So, so then I didn't work all the time. It was gone, and then I started actually directing. 
that's when I started directing. That's when I started my directing career. What is that? What is it that draws people to that? Because most people who I know in your business that are performers love directing. It's the most amazing thing. To me, they're totally two different jobs. Well, I have a love-hate relationship with it, honestly, because I think that it's also one of the hardest things you could ever do. It's one of the loneliest things that you could ever do. It's In some ways, I think directing is almost masochistic. And for me, it wasn't that I was so much drawn to it that I wanted to do it. It was, I just, I had stories inside of me that I wanted to tell and I didn't know how. And for, I remember the first music video I ever did, my friend had written a song that was a prayer. And the prayer goes, armed with the power of thy name, nothing can ever hurt me. And it was this gorgeous prayer and I was driving and I used to, and I loved music because I was a DJ. I saw the video in my head and I went, and I'm the kind of person that if I have an idea, you are very similar to this. You just call and you say, this is meant to be and it's happening. And like what happened today with us outside of this, mm-hmm. like it's, it's coming through me. I know it. I feel it. We have to do something about it now, not in five minutes. <laughs> That's very much, it's, impu- it's an impulsive urge when you have a prompting, right. right? And I remember calling my friend and saying, I love your song. I just saw the video in my head. Can I please make a video? I'll pay for it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and he's like, sure. So I did it. I had no idea what I was doing. I had just like, I brought in this DP that it was a, was a friend of mine from this tiny little indie movie that I did. And I got these actors and I told this story and it was a very heavy, emotional story that was about death and loss and finding the joy in it, which to this day now, 15 years later, 14 years later, I'm still doing the exact same thing just in movie format. Yeah. And what I found in that first experience was I know how to do that. If I have a superpower as a director or as a, as a storyteller or as a person, it's, it's figuring out how to tell stories that are very heavy and that people run away from and finding a way to inject joy in them and make them something so that when you watch it, you're, you, you are, are transformed in a way, mm-hmm. right? Like I, my, our attention is so short these days. Like how can I inject so much heart and love or passion or humanity into something that you watch it and you go, oh, I'm going to think about that for the next six hours. Yeah, you you always I, – I watched a lot of stuff that you've created um, yourself. I, I really wanted to understand that um, before I came in and talked to you. And what you, what you are – what you do over and over again is show a different way of looking and it's your way of seeing. You're sharing in a way the way that you see, the joy that you see. And you talk a little bit in other interviews I've read about – creating an environment of love and comfort, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, I, that's where, th- but that's just where everything thrives. I think that oftentimes we forget the difference between a pasta dish that I could order at like LA's best restaurant and my grandma's, my nana's was that it was made in the, with the process of love. That's it. The only difference, the ingredients could be the same, but it could taste completely different. Mm-hmm. And I think that the same thing goes into anything that we do. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. Specifically yeah. like, you know, filmmaking. I think that you can tell the difference when something was made with love versus something that's not. Mm -hmm. So do you expect in your future life as you go forward to wear both hats? It's an interesting thing that you bring up, you know, so I just, I just directed my first studio film. It's really cool. I'm, I'm in season five of my TV show. Which, by the way, Jane the Virgin is one of my all-time favorite shows because I don't like to be unhappy and sad, (laughs) and it makes me laugh, and I love that you did the work, and the work is great. And to our listeners that haven't seen it, go back and start from season one. Jane the Virgin. And just watch it all the way What's kind of fun is that we didn't even bring up Jane the Virgin until, you know, minute 45 of this thing, which is great. (laughs) So I find myself right now, literally right now, 
I am editing my movie five dressing rooms down from where Raphael goes to change. What's the name <laughs> of the film? Uh, it's called Five Feet Apart. And uh, it comes out on March 22nd. Theaters is it a happy film? everywhere. And it is exactly what we're describing, which is it is it's really an exploration of love via these two teenagers who meet in a hospital who both have a terminal illness. And because of their specific illness, which is cystic fibrosis, they're not allowed to touch. So it's an exploration of love without the normal teen romance. Wow. Like things that we all fall back on. Right. Because I think that so many of us today, like when you think of romantic love, the first thing you think about is sex, but it's not. It's and for any of uh, those of us that have been married for more than a couple years or for 30 years or 40 years, you know, that ends up not really being the most important or top five things really on the list anymore. I see a dangerous, scary trend happening with our young people, which is that they're forgetting that marriage and love is really difficult. And they're we're looking for fairy tales and for these, you know, perfect stories and they're missing love and they're missing opportunities that are right in front of them because they're just swiping in their brains because they're just they're so used to like swipe 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 they're doing it in their brains if the person doesn't look a certain way and i really wanted to do an exploration like what would love look like if you couldn't touch somebody did you write it i created it i didn't physically i i developed it and i wrote it with the two writers that mm-hmm. i hired um but and then you a, found somebody to fund it and finance it and, and then we went and to uh and we found we found a studio to to fund it and um, made it. and But yeah, so it's really an exploration of love and how the human heart is capable of holding both joy and pain simultaneously. I'm excited because it's also very commercial. Mm-hmm. And I really want to, uh, that's the one well, it thing sounds about, like it's an absolute tearjerker. It's a tearjerker, but not in the way you'd expect. And that's the other thing that I really am working hard on is you know, I want you to cry happy tears. I don't want you if you're if you're depressed after you watch something of mine that I feel like I let you down. I really want to take subjects that are 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 stereotypically and like tab like the taboo wise depressing and show a different side to it. And I think that we accomplished it with this. I'm excited for the world to see it and I'm excited for young people to see it because I think that we take for granted touch. And you can replace the word touch with anything else and we take it for granted. Breathing. These kids have cystic fibrosis. You know, I just lost my dear friend who had cystic fibrosis, Claire, um, who this movie was actually inspired by. Every breath was a struggle for her. And so much of what privileged people like us take for granted every single day, there are entire populations of people fighting for you know, it's really that it's that it's that exploration and I'm excited about it. I'm ready. So, so to answer your question, I, yeah, I think, I think doing both because they offer me two different things. Yeah. One offers me the ability to tell stories that are in my head to a mass audience. The other offers me a creative expression to explore parts of myself on camera. But more than anything, the reason why I appreciate and like acting for me is that it, that without it, all this stuff I'm doing, nobody gives a shit. Yeah. Well, it's an easier drawing card it's, for sure. It's a turbocharger of everything else but you do. Let's be real, right? You yeah. asked me earlier about what it's like to look the way that I do and and at the same time balance the things that I balance. It's a really unfortunate thing that we live in a world where if I didn't look the way that I did, I wouldn't have a voice. And if I wasn't on the show that I was on, you and I wouldn't have met. 
or we would, and, or I wouldn't be taken as seriously as I should, or my carnival wouldn't have grown for the homeless as big as it's grown, or or my work with the dying, or whatever it is. It requires these superficial things to operate in this town that and we live in. And all of this goes back to your point of view on your spirituality. You know, this is a constant circle of paying it forward, saying it forward, you know, doing it forward, so that all of these things, uh, that you can use your gifts to pay it forward. And to have the opportunity to get people to say yes when you put together something like the Carnival of Love. I mean, how else are you going to get people to say yes, right, without using your platform? Because it's a tremendous amount of work. But the, as I know personally, the reward in doing that work is overwhelming. The yeah. reward is incredible. And by the way, for the for the audience, the, there's a we throw a carnival for the homeless every year on Skid Row. It's called the Carnival of Love, and we serve four thousand homeless. And by the way, I, I'm starting to say those experiencing homelessness because they don't want them to be defined by a title of them just being homeless. And we have 2,000 volunteers show up every year. And it's a day of letting an entire population that's that's generally forgotten except for days of charity be seen, heard, and loved in a completely new way because the carnival is an interactive experience where one volunteer gets paired with one person experiencing homelessness. And for that day, the job is to see the person to talk to the person, to hear the person, to lift up the person, to remind them that they're human. That's not just like, here, let me give you a bag of clothes and then, you know, like, good luck. And Rebecca so kindly serves on a, my board of directors. But the experience yeah. of doing that too, I mean, the, when I first got involved with this with you, I don't think I really fully understood how profoundly difficult it is to be in the cycle of homelessness mm -hmm. and to get out of it. You know, what gets you there in the first place and how do you get out of that cycle? And it's just so overwhelming to see how many people show up to try to give a hand. And I think the difference between what you're doing and what so many other people do is that you keep showing up. You know, a lot of people like to have their day where they've done something and they can say, oh, I did this today. But you keep showing up and you keep trying to help, and you keep trying to spread it forward, and you keep delivering that message. And that's, I think, the distinction that is a great credit to you. Well, the, but, but let me also say this. There are selfish aspects to the things that I do that are not also perfect. And, you know, I, like everybody else, wake up and so easily forget, right? One of the Arabic words for human, right? One of the oldest languages is insan, they who forget. And we, as human beings, we forget partly because we have to, because there's just far too much pain. And also because if we don't forget, then there's no process of remembering. And then what the hell is the point of life? There's a prayer in the Baha'i faith we're supposed to say every day, like to know thee, like to remember thee, right? For me, this also is a process of remembering because I am very privileged. I am a white, straight man. All three of those things mean <laughs> that like I have the upper hand and the benefit in this world anywhere I go. Even over you two white straight women, I have a hand up, right? And so I'm already at the top of the food chain technically by birth. So it's very easy to forget. So a lot of these things that I do also, while they are of service and while they are, um, I believe, coming through me and that's my purpose here, is also selfish in that I need to remember. So the carnival for me, setting a day and a practice and having that be something that I do every year that I work on during the year is really important because it's humbling it's grounding, and it gives me purpose to the other things that I do. So there are selfish aspects of it as well. You know, like my last days, it's a very challenging thing 
to watch your friends die because these people become like my little brothers and sisters. Like, like I've been in a very dark place after Claire passed away unexpectedly this last weekend. But at the same time, as, as noble from the outside, as it looks, it's also extremely gratifying. And there are aspects of it that are very selfish because getting to spend time with these people is a massive gift for me. Getting to learn from them is a massive gift for me. And so like it is, so yes. So I just want to say that like on one hand, yeah, sure. Like it's good work. It's important work. But at the same time, I'm also benefiting a lot from it, even down to, uh, two wonderful women like yourselves telling me how great this work that I'm doing is a part of that goes back in the like, Oh, that strokes my ego part of my brain. And I have to remember that none of this isn't about me Um, because it always feels good to be congratulated on your work and on your good services and to feel like you're a good person from the outside world. But at the end of the day, what I know, especially in the world that I am in with people that are dying of these illnesses, it's all between me and my creator and nothing that anybody says matters unless God at the end of my life says, you did all those things with the right intentions and with a pure heart. Uh, and it's not always with the right intentions and with the pure hearts. <laughs> because sometimes, sometimes, like, I need to go down to Skid Row for me, right. <laughs> not because of those people. And then sometimes it is for them. What I've realized is as long as I'm doing it, I'll sort out the purity part of it later. But I just want to say that there's always two sides to it, yeah. right? The pastor on the pulpit, as much as... He's doing it to serve the word of God. There's a part of him that is doing it for himself. And yeah. it's important that we always remember that. We don't judge it, but we remember it because like, we're not perfect spiritual beings that are enlightened. There is nobody on this planet that is. And if they are here, they're not going to be here for long because they're, the, the work here then is done. We're all in this process of constant refinement. So like nobody is there. Nobody's got, nobody's enlightened, you know, and if they were, they wouldn't have to be here anymore. The most important jobs that, that we have as people today is when we become parents to teach our mm. children well. And I think that that is, that is the, the real, you know, moving it forward, right? But we only teach them. And the only, there's only one way to really teach our kids, and that's by showing them yeah. right. through action. Right. Can, can I go back to the people who, through your series, you've walked with, sat with, mm-hmm. talked to, held their hand? You've journeyed with those people, and it. I noticed your company's called Wayfarer. Mm-hmm. Is it from the poem about Wayfarer? There, there is no path; there are only steps in sand. No, the, so the Wayfarer, is Wayfarer, is, is from. Um, it's from a Baha'i book called the Seven, the Four Valleys and the Seven Valleys, and um, it's Baha'u'llah answering, uh, I believe, a Sufi's uh, poem. It's like a and. Uh, he and it's like a it's an answer to a request essentially and there's a lot of islamic scripture in it as well but the wayfare is the the journey of the soul right and he Mm -hmm. describes the wayfare as our process through in life he calls it the seven valleys and the four valleys and the soul goes through all of these different valleys in the attempt to attach himself or herself to god and the creator and detached from the world. So the so Wayfarer was born of that. It can be what I, what I liked about it was that it could be about traveling, it can be about the journey, it could be about mm-hmm. whatever you want to make it mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. That's what our work is. But it's very much about just the individual finding a path towards its creator. It's so it's so interesting to to listen to you speak because it's about 
not only walking towards those who might be transitioning or in pain, human pain on earth, but it's also about walking towards all of your own issues. It's like consuming them with as much relish as you might consume the joyful parts of your life. And Yeah, and the challenge is um, – and this is my challenge is there are times when then it becomes so heavy I miss my own joy. So there's times when I spend so much time trying to help other people see the joy that I miss it myself. And something my wife and I are talking about. I just recently I just recently put out a couple feelers for grief counselors because I realized 25 documentaries in that I haven't been taking care of my own feelings around this subject. Mm-hmm. You know, it causes you to really examine your own mortality, which I think that all of us should do, but it shouldn't uh it shouldn't overwhelm you to the point where you're forgetting to live mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um so i think this weekend i had you know, i had three friends pass away one on saturday one on sunday one on monday um and two of them were from my last days one of them i was expecting to go the other two i weren't and i just was like it was like a one two three punch and i went oh i better start taking care of myself because if i don't take care of myself and figure out my own thoughts and feelings around this it's going to be very hard for me to then practice the things that i'm preaching, mm-hmm. right? Or teaching and not preaching. And so what does taking care of yourself mean? So in well, so much as you processing, know. Processing, processing, like allowing myself the time to process the loss, right? And we have this kind of saying at my company because we go from one thing to another and don't celebrate the wins a lot. And we're trying like, how do we celebrate these wins? But when you're doing the work that we're doing, you know, this all started, I started making micro docs on homeless people called Stories from the Street. At the same time, I started doing my last days mm-hmm. and you realize like, well, that's great. My last days. Well, we're on to the next person, right? So you finish this season of my last days and 50 emails come in of people that are amazing that want their stories told. And you just realize like there's no time to process. So you just jump from one person to another at any given point in time. I have five to six or seven people that are on, that I'm texting with that are all in various stages of a terminal illness. And like, what a, like, where are my thoughts around that? Now I have two kids and I have a wife and I have these attachments to this world and, and like, fuck, what if that happened to me? I haven't, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so all of these things come up. And I think that as much as, as much as the work is important for the outside world, I also need to make sure that I'm, that I'm, uh, I'm doing as much foundational support work on myself. And I haven't done that. And it's also been a lack of time. Well, you know, um, the I've had a, a few, uh, sadly more than I want to have losses, but I had one particular tragic loss in that my mother died very abruptly. Mm. And I did a similar thing to what you're saying is I kind of said, oh, it's okay, you know, and, and moved on from it in a in a uh, sort of bravado way and instead of allowing the pain to live with me. Yeah. And uh, somebody told me, he said, um, the healing is in the pain. You have to look at the pain to really be able to move forward. And, um, you know, you have had a profound amount of stuff happen. And it's it's overwhelming. It's a lot to deal with. Well, Rumi says that the crack is where the light gets in which was later in a song by Leonard Cohen. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and it's also what bringing it all, way, all the way back is what my faith teaches. Right. Baha'u'llah says that my calamity is my providence. Outwardly, it is fire and vengeance. And inwardly, it is light and mercy. So this idea that like what we're thinking is happening, that is the worst, worst thing in the world. Our creator, if you deep, deep, like dig into it deeply, you'll find that this dark fire is really light and mercy. 
and that crack, like Rumi says, that's where light gets in and that's where healing begins. And, and that's something that I'm like actively pushing into and trying to kind of explore on my own at the well, moment. Well, if you don't take care of yourself. You can't take care of anybody else. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And we talk about that a lot too. Oxygen I, mask. I, I really want to acknowledge you for saying that you're going to do this and I know you'll do it because if that's how you roll, but I, I think it's just <laughs> for anybody who might hear this, um, especially men, I think it's a really powerful message. Yeah. Well, and that's a whole other world that I'm surprised we didn't even get into, yeah. but, but you know, that's a very important thing for me is, you know, I did a Ted talk on masculinity and, and I've leaned deeply into the importance of opening up dialogue amongst men and really exploring what masculinity means and self-care and the admittance of weakness uh, has always been attributed to feminine and men have always inherently viewed feminine as weak, which we know is not the case. Right. Uh, so it's really about redefining those words and what they mean and how they uh, how we're socialized to view them and seeing vulnerability as strength. And, and uh, so a lot of my work actually – an equal amount of my work at the moment and is with men. Yeah. And this platform that we're building for men. So, so yeah, it's very important to just to be like unbashedly like, yeah, I got to take care of myself. Like yeah. I need to go to therapy for that stuff. That's some real stuff for my wife and I need to talk about that more, you know, yeah. mental thing, health and self-care. One thing that came forward because I listened to a little bit. I listened to the TED Talk obviously, but um, that came forward was again this balance of vulnerability and accountability. And it's almost like you're creating this, this – um, space in which a new model for what it means to be a man. Well, hopefully human, but yeah, at the moment it's a man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm sensitive to your time. I know that it's – Oh, no, it's okay. How about – what's – ooh, it's 1130. It's 1137. Five minutes. Here we go. (laughs) But keep keep going on your question. Um, You – you could talk about that. I was, I wasn't oh. a question as much. I like to, I don't like to ask questions as much as to prompt areas to let you speak. Um, so it's, it's really, it's accountability really, is huge. Accountability is a big part of it. And, uh, again, a lot of this stuff hasn't necessarily been conscious. Like I didn't wake up one morning and say, here are the things that I'm going to hit on in my life. And these are the things I want to teach. It's really just all been about, what moves me and drives me and what are the things that I feel need to be explored? And the masculinity part of it was a very interesting part of it because I started with this fan base and following of Jane the Virgin, uh, had so many women following me because women love this show. And it's written by women for women and men, but really women are drawn to it. And I found that I started talking about things that I cared about and the way that I saw the world from my heart. And women were like freaking out that a dude was talking about this stuff. Even down to when I proposed to my wife, I made her this like 27 minute long proposal video that we didn't put online at first because it was just for her. And uh, we eventually put online because all of our friends really made us. And it became like one of the most viral proposal videos ever, right? <laughs> it's 27 minutes long. And women that. were just like, Ooh. I didn't know that. I have to find that. Oh, you haven't seen it? No. Oh, God. Have you? I'm going to be getting. Leanne, did you see it? No, I didn't. Well, here I'm going to see it today. No, but I did, I did see the TED Talk. And, and... Yeah, I saw the TED Talk. Well, what's talk. funny is that for a long time, I was the proposal guy. Yeah, <laughs> I was the proposal guy. That was how because I wasn't acting at the time. This was when I was making the My Last Day stories. I was just the proposal guy, and then I became the Jane the Virgin guy, and then the Ted guy, and the masculinity guy. So right. uh, you have these different 
you know, sectors of right. people that follow There's you. But such... my point was that women were just so confused. Mm-hmm. Back to your thing that as someone that looked the way that I did was talking about the things that I was talking about. And I didn't understand that because again, this was second nature. I was like, why are people so confused? Because you don't see yourself in that way. You, of course you, not. You're much more sort of you more, have a more complex relationship with yourself. Of than course, that. we all do. We all do. So, so, well, so that's where. So it was born out of this weird place of, you know, is it that weird that I want equality for my wife and daughter, and why? And I didn't understand why I was being like lifted up as this man that like this feminist man that believed in these things when in reality it's second nature. Yeah. But that's, that has a lot to do with the way you were raised. It does. And, but um, I mean, you know, I don't know, I know your dad, I don't know your mom, but that has a lot to do with the way you were raised. Yeah. And from the very beginning of your life, you spoke earlier about your relationship with your Nana from the very beginning of your life, you had respect for women. You had respect for the roles that they played in your life. And therefore, you know, for you, it's not unusual. It's people that have been born into um, a point of view that's different than that. In my own personal experiences as doing what I do for a living, what my day job is. Because you're in a very stereotypically masculine profession. And I've never had – people ask me about this regularly. I've never had a single man resistant to working with me ever. I mean Mm -hmm. not a single guy never hired me because I was a woman. They hired me because I was – in that area where we were perceived as being the best that you could be and didn't make any difference. So we've, we have sort of parallel points of view in that. I have zero point of view that men are better than women are in, you know, in, in pretty much in any area with the possible exception of construction. I may have to say that they're strong. Well, yeah, but I mean like <laughs> – But outside but, of that – Yeah, but there are certain things that scientifically are, are – Male, masculine are, and – Are yeah. just well, – well, yeah, we're built generally differently with right. outliers on both sides, right? There are women that are far stronger and bigger than men and there are men that are smaller and weaker and tinier than women, right? The, but when but you... the general feeling is, yeah, there are things that men can excel at because they're just – they have to be – it's you know muscular it's this or this or this but, but the overwhelming feeling the that i get from having listened to you today is that you're in touch with who you want to be and you're working towards being even better at it than you are today simply as a matter of time but you're in touch with who you are and who you want to be and that you're clear about the fact that it's you're fluid and um you're learning the lessons that you learn from people who cross your path and you're taking from them things that matter to you and the other ones don't you don't give them much air i want to go back to which the I ma- like male, a lot. i want to go back to the male female thing for a minute though because i think it's a really um, it's an interesting moment mm-hmm. that you're stepping into because you are authentically and with great integrity bringing forward how you feel about mm-hmm. your wife, how you feel about your daughter based on the legacy of your family and how you're raised and to some degree the religious following – I mean uh, your, your, your faith, yeah. you know, the, the concept of, you know, uh, the, the two wings of the bird, the male, mm-hmm. the female and, and without it, the, the humanity can't soar, right? But there's such a thirst for that to come from a real place. Today, now. And, and the yeah. – the, the, 
TED Talk, you go into this where, you know, a guy said something in, mm-hmm. a, in a comment on a social posting, you know, stop showing me, pardon the expression, gay shit. Yeah. And you had the sort of um, guts, I, I guess I would call it the gutsiness, to write back to the guy and say, I really genuinely want to understand. What do you mean? Yeah. How is this gay that, that I – that I I wish for these these sort of this equity between men well, and women. Pic- but I know the picture was just me kissing my wife. Yes, and his, and his girlfriend tagged him in that picture. Yeah, and he said, "Why you keep tagging me in gay yeah. shit?" So the the thing the thing that was amazing to me is like there's this opportunity for new leadership. It seems I had no desire to be a leader, though. I know I get that. I see I see <laughs> that you're like I have enough does. leadership yeah. on my plate right now, but at the same time, there is such a thirst for. I think that. I tend to gravitate to things that I didn't have access to. There wasn't examples in the world for what men could be for for myself growing up with the exception of my dad, right? And because he was my dad, I also resisted some of that because that's what we do with our parents. You don't realize what you have oftentimes until they're gone. Or luckily for me, I've realized that long before that happens. So there, there wasn't a, there wasn't, there, were, there weren't positive male role models and the positive male role models that... That we thought were positive male role models, you look back on, and there's a scandal around every single one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this you know? is a very uh, this is a loaded topic for sure. And but in going back to what you just said, you know, sometimes greatness is thrust upon you. <laughs> well, I, I think so. I, I think I, in this again, case, it is. But you have, again, there. But there is no greatness because at the same time, what's really important for me in doing this work is also showing and expressing that there is like, I am just as imperfect and flawed as any of the other men that may look up to me based on that talk. As an example, though, even with that Ted talk, I would say it was received with open arms and standing ovations from women around the world and hated by men everywhere. With the exception of the hundreds and hundreds of messages I get from men that are pouring their hearts out saying, that's me. Right. But in general, for some reason, it was a 50-50, which was also has been my experience as a man uh, growing up. Now it's a bit different because what do men look at? Like men look at other men that have power and money and success and looks and fitness. And that's those are the men that they model themselves after, which technically I have all of those things. So it allows me to be in a position of power with men that I meet in my life. But there's keyboard courage. And, uh, and I like men, that one. I've never heard that one before. And, That's and it's very easy for men to tear me down and talk about all the horrible things that I'm projecting and saying. What I found was that there's a lot of men that didn't listen to the whole talk. Right. There's a lot of men that just watched like the two minute snippet that Ted put up that's got 40 million views that doesn't really get into the whole point of my experience as a man and what I'm saying and what I offer men and anybody is that this is not about tearing down masculinity and it's not about tearing down men. The reason men hate feminism is because they are under the illusion that feminism hates them, which is not. Like my favorite definition of fe- feminism is is the radical notion that women are human beings. Yeah. So it's men, hum- it's a humanist thing. Men just yeah. need to understand that that I am not attacking men. I'm calling men in and saying, "Hey, you're already amazing at this, but can we be, be- can we be better by doing this?" And in doing so, what I found is the way that that's the most helpful to me is by showing the men and explaining how imperfect and flawed I am in my own life. Mm -hmm. Like you say, I grew up respecting women, but there's been many times in my life where I haven't respected women. Many times I haven't respected men. Um, But we learn from those things. Right. So just in general, 
it's it's a it's an accidental position of leadership that I hope can inspire other better leaders. There is there's a lot there of men no doing question. this work. Yeah, no, I know there, there are, but, are in, but times are changing. You know, this is this whole thing that's going on right now is clearly, uh, well, hopefully, a turn. Yeah, but at the same the time, you know, time. I've talked about this before, and I and I mean no disrespect to men or women, but I believe that a lot of what's going on today is confusing to men. It is confusing. And I think that women need to understand that if a man is inappropriate to you in any way, you know, turn around and say, you're being inappropriate to me. But don't be surprised when you walk into a room as a woman and you walk into that room and you're dressed kind of naked, that a guy whistles at you or wants to put their arms around you or perhaps, you know, slides his hand down and it rests on your backside. It's confusing to men when you're dressed naked, and that's what dressed happens. Naked. You know, and it's so and that's it's a, a tricky area, though, Rebecca. Tricky. That's it's a tricky price. area on both sides because 100%. women women should inherently have the have right to the dress right to any way that they, they want. And women and men have been socialized um, one for women to be afraid of men, and for women to be afraid to speak their voice to men because sexual and physical abuse is pervasive and is an epidemic everywhere. Right. One in six women are going to be raped in their lifetime is like what some of these things it's are. Shocking. So 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 it's a tricky area. And it's very important, I think, for many women to make sure that they're that they know that whether or not they are touched or abused shouldn't shouldn't be based on what they choose to wear. And Couldn't men need to have the self-discipline and understanding to know that as a woman, uh, because look, a man can take a shirt off and, you know be working, you know, in the field or in a construction and not be sexualized. But the second you show a woman like a part of her breast, something goes from PG to PG 13. And it's the way that we've been socialized. So even down to, you know, how we view sex and the way we think about sex, it's very different from men and and from women. And, and for many women, the way they dress is a form of expression. So if they're, if they feel. We're saying the same thing. I'm just saying that it's tricky because uh, men. We can't put the burden on the women because the women are the marginalized, Right. In this situation, but they should be able to do what they want to do. They should be able to do what they want to but do. Then, and but men they don't need be surprised learn. when they when the guy's whistling at them. That's the that's the point I'm making. Yeah, but unfortunately, a lot of women have experienced not just the whistling, but the men pulling out their penises on subway trains and <laughs> masturbating in front of them and having nobody stop them because and they mm-hmm. feel completely helpless and violated. Like there are way too many of these Me Too stories and women that have experienced abuse at the hands of men. That it's far deeper than just the idea that it's what they're wearing. It's we have an issue yeah. with men, we really do. Oh yeah. And but at the same time, we've also had the same socialization issues with women, and I think that there's work on both sides. Yeah. Did and you I happen say, to see Ariana Grande and this whole uh, thing that happened with her the other day? I did, just saw. Like I, I just briefly saw well, something it, on it Twitter. Was I don't two, even know what happened. It was a two prong thing, but the one uh, Bill Clinton was ogling her. Bill Clinton would ogle a pencil if he could. So. You know, I didn't pay much attention to that, but what I did pay attention to (laughs) was the fact that the priest or the minister or... or, um, Yeah, I saw that. Put his hand literally here on her side, resting, you know, where her bra line is. And the backlash from that was loud and fast. And I was really surprised that she didn't pull away from him. I really was. I was like, you're under no obligation to let that man stand there and have his hand on you. And she didn't pull away from him. And this gets back to what I said before, which is it's tricky for women. 
It's tricky. I mean, I'm sure she was uncomfortable. There's no way she couldn't have been uncomfortable. And yet she didn't pull away from him. And then it got, you know, became the biggest news story for three, three days in a row. There's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why that probably happened. And there's a lot of research and studies and things being done in a lot of organizations that are working actively in this space that can tell you exactly why that didn't happen. But I know that many it's like it's like us being able to it's like us saying, well, why didn't she leave him? Because he was abusing her. It's far right. more complex than that. I don't even and know especially why. Especially on national television when you're that famous. And it's I think they were at a funeral. I think yeah, it was, Aretha's it's funeral. just like there's so many different parts of that. And, you know, I, well, yeah, she might have been we're saying the same she was thing. I'm telling you, rude to the, the pastor of the church. Yeah. Who knows? And, then, and and, you know, this is somebody that like anyways, there's just it's a yeah. it's just there's just a lot. Yeah. 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 Do we have to Justin's say goodbye? It's been great. No, it's we'll been come back. fantastic talking to you. Yeah, really. Next time, our guest will be Beth Moskowitz, who began her very successful career in the world of sports ticketing during the 1994 World Cup, where she helped make it one of the most financially successful World Cups in the tournament's history. She continued to sell tickets to all special events, including the Olympics, the Final Four, and the Super Bowl. In 2001, she co-founded Razorgator, which went on to become the third largest online ticket reselling business in the country. She has parlayed her ticket-selling savvy into her work with Sports Spectacular, a nonprofit that supports Cedars-Sinai Medical Center to eradicate diabetes and obesity, and has raised more than $30 million for the cause. Beth continues to make her mark in philanthropy and business, where she is an advisor on influencer strategies and a current investor for startups you've probably heard of that include Beyond Meat and Casper Betts. So join us when we find out how a girl from L.A. hit the cover off the ball in business when we rewind to the beginning with Beth Moskowitz on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 